inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Spark Wonder, Invent Possible. That is one of the taglines of the Kid Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida, which also happens to be the sponsor of Radio Cade. And today, uh, we're very pleased to have with us the Executive Director, Stephanie Bales of the Cade Museum. Welcome, Stephanie. Oh, thank you for having me here. So, Stephanie, it's a little bit weird because I know most of the answers to all the questions I'm going to ask you, but our listeners may not. So, um, let's start out with the Cade Museum. Tell uh, us a little bit what it's about, a little bit of its sort of origin story, um, and then we're going to talk about uh, something even more interesting. That's you. So, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> well... I always start out with the mission of the Cade Museum, and that is to transform communities through inspiring and equipping future inventors, entrepreneurs, and visionaries. And I think that mission statement is so important because it contains really the spirit of who we are um, in, in two ways. The first component is transform communities, and the second component is inspiring and equipping. And um, with the inspiration and the equipping piece, that is what we do every day in this beautiful facility that we have in Gainesville, Florida. And that's where we bring individuals of all ages into the museum and really give them an opportunity to have hands-on experiences, immersive experiences with science and art and technology, um, things that they might not necessarily come across in their day-to-day. And why Gainesville and why invention? What's the connection? Right. So um, I guess the inspiration for the Cade is um, actually Dr. Cade. And uh, you know our founder very well, Phoebe Miles. (laughs) Um, She is the youngest daughter of Dr. Cade. And Dr. Cade invented Gatorade. And Gatorade, you know, growing up in Florida, well, just growing up, Gatorade is a common product. You just think it's there for um, times when you're thirsty or hot and sweaty. And what I never realized until I came to the museum is that it was such a transformative product. It it not only transformed um, the science and medical industries, it transformed the sports industry, um, and it really transformed the landscape of university-sponsored research. And those are things that you just don't fully understand when you look at an invention that's sitting in front of you. Sometimes we're so used to just using it, using what's in front of you, and you don't think about really the implications of it and, and how it may have changed our world. And I think one of the, you know, the interesting things about Gatorade, and a lot of people uh, may not know this, but that it, it didn't start out in a corporate boardroom. It didn't, this was not some sort of marketer's plan to conquer the beverage industry. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I mean, Dr. Cade was a research scientist, a right. kidney doctor, right? So this was uh, really, they were just trying, he and his colleagues were trying to solve a problem, specifically for football players, and then right. kind of took off. Um, now, it helped to be in Florida, as you say, where it's hot and we'll drink 
damn near anything. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephanie, um, we're going to come back and talk more about the Kid Museum and sort of what it's doing and where it's going. But I want to talk about you a little bit. Um, you are from Florida, from Jacksonville, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and tell me a little bit about um, Stephanie Bales, the young girl, Stephanie Bales. You know, what were you interested in? What were you like? Um, you know, do do you look back on your childhood and, and sort of see elements of uh, this, af- you know, affinity for invention and entrepreneurship back then, or, or did this drop into your life at a later point? It did drop into my life at a later point. My when I was young, I always wanted to help people. I um, my earliest kind of goal was to be a pediatrician. And as I went through school, I recognized that anything below the molecular level, I just wasn't interested in comprehending. (laughs) And I started to turn my eyes more towards helping the individual and um, helping them more in a sense of perhaps a social worker or something along those lines. So in um, in my studies and such, I ended up graduating from University of Florida with a degree in sociology in my first My first position was um, doing crisis intervention for physically and sexually abused children. And I did that for a year. And in that year, I had three small children. They died from the abuse that they suffered at the hands of the people who were there to care for them. And I realized, as you can tell, my heart was too soft to be on the front line. But I still knew I wanted to make a difference. And so in my inexperienced, smaller kind of worldview, 22-year-old head, (laughs) I said to myself, I'm going to go work in business. And I'm going to go learn the skills that are necessary to come back one day and work for a nonprofit and make a difference as an administrator. Because then I'll be a little bit farther removed from the day-to-day, but I'd still be able to help. But you didn't study business at UF. No. Okay. (laughs) Which, and now I look back on my career, and it's just unbelievable Mm -hmm. that I have had the experiences on an international scale that I've had and the people that I've worked with. I mean, just a kind of a quick breeze through it is um, after I made that decision, I found myself in Atlanta working for Bell South Communications, selling Yellow Pages ads over the phone quickly learned that was not my skill set either and um but but i was in it at a time where the local telecommunications industry was blowing up back then at&t was a monopoly kind of like now google and amazon are monopolies and um at&t and the baby bells were broken apart and so it was a ripe opportunity for other companies like MCI, telecommunications, um, XO Communications, Telligent, to come in and break into those marketplaces. And I was positioned in that innovative entrepreneurial startup environment at the very beginning of my business career. And so I must have worked for seven different companies in 10 years because of the nature of the environment. But in that Um, In that experience, I understood the tenacity that was needed, the grit that was needed, the sense of balance and such, and the volatility of working in startup and entrepreneurial environments. Now we're talking Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's back up just a little bit. Um, For people who have grown up in Florida, one of the things that strikes me about Florida is it's it's more – it's less an actual – 
unified state is sort of a collection of cities. <laughs> and anyone who spent time in various cities realized, wow, they're really different. Mm-hmm. How How is Jacksonville... Uh, like the rest of Florida, and how is it not like the rest of Florida? Because it has sort of a distinct feel, right? You, so you grew up there, you went to high school there, right? Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. And now you live in Gainesville. What is what is makes Jacksonville Jacksonville? The water. Jacksonville is so incredible. I grew up. I I think I had a boat at the age of fourteen, and grew up water skiing on the St. Johns, not appreciating really fully the in, immense beauty that the St. John's offers because it was all I knew. Um, But it is such an incredible river. And then the ocean, Um, Ponte Vedra Beach, Atlantic Beach, Neptune Beaches, those were my playgrounds in the summers and pretty much year round. And so I think that that kind of um, that that element, the water, the fluidity, the restorative nature of water makes Jacksonville um, what it is. Also, we have a Navy base there, and we had a lot of um, banking industry and credit card financial service industry in Jacksonville. So you have that element as well on the business side. It's always struck me that Jacksonville doesn't seem as southern, I guess, as other cities in... Would, would you say that? Or is that oh. uh, maybe just betrays the fact I haven't spent a lot of time in Jacksonville? No, I think Jacksonville is probably more southern really? okay. than most... Well, I got that I, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think that once you... Get south of Gainesville, around Orlando, the um, the nature of the state, the flavor of the state really begins to change. I feel like the state is separated into two parts. You know, there's the northern part and the southern part, but Florida is a unique place. <laughs> uh, then you spent some time in Washington, D.C. or mm-hmm. in the area, right? You're there about a decade, right? Decade plus? Yeah, about 15, 17 years. You worked partly for telecommunications, but also you did some other stuff. Well, so this is when my you know, early belief started to manifest itself. I was brought up to Washington, D.C. I was hired by a company called Telligent. Um, to work in their environment in D.C., and it was a big change from a girl coming from Jacksonville, Florida, and Atlanta. And um, through that process, I um, started a small telecom company with a friend of mine and did that for a couple of years, and he it really was his. You know, I helped him get it up and running, but um, it's still in, in place today. But after I left that company, I... I decided to start working um, in the nonprofit world. And I um, was hired by Special Olympics International, which was probably the best experience of my entire life. How long were you with them? I was only with them for about uh, 13, 14 months. Um, I was hired as their director of planning. And so I helped put together their first global planning process, bringing and a million athletes, five regions, 72 countries, and aligning their budget with their operational goals. And it was an incredible piece of work to do. I think at the time I was about 28, 29. And it was it was a very much a man's world. And um, it was a big challenge. And our first planning meeting happened on 9-11. Yeah. And so um, I will always remember the director of HR walking down the hallway toward me around eight ish in the morning. And he looked at me and he said, a plane flew into the World Trade Center. And I was like, Jeff, stop it. 
this isn't even funny. He's like, no. <laughs> and we had um, several of our regional directors in the air from Egypt, China, etc. And um, that was a day where I really learned what it meant to be in a leadership position because I, our first responsibility was getting all the employees home. And then leadership had to collectively make a decision. Do we use the time to plan for the organization to move forward or do we react to the events of the day? And we use the time for the next two days to plan. And, um, and, and if you weren't in D.C. or in New York, I mean, it was a dead zone there. It was incredible. I mean, under lockdown, uh, police, fire, fire trucks everywhere, moving around was difficult. Um, it was surreal. It was like being in a movie. No, I, I remember that day well. I was also in Washington, and yeah. I, I remember uh, walking back from the State Department to the Metro and crossing Pennsylvania Avenue, and the Secret Service was out in the middle of the street telling people to run. That's right. when you really feel like you're in a movie, you know, it's a, and people were running. It was uh, quite incredible. So you made it, uh, so you were in, in D.C., and then you returned with your family back to Gainesville. What drew you back to Gainesville? We had a, I got married, we had two small children and we decided to start our own business. Again, these are, these are things that we didn't necessarily plan, but just kind of happened upon. And um, my husband and I started um, a clothing company where we manufactured collegiate licensed apparel. So we learned a lot about the apparel industry, about, um, you know, manufacturing textiles, uh, global distribution <laughs> and supply chain, um, also working with, um, you know, university licensing and such. We had a product that was sold all over the U.S. So part of the coming back to the Cade Museum, part of the mission of the museum is to create an environment or encourage entrepreneurs, not just inventors, but entrepreneurs. Having been an entrepreneur or businesswoman yourself, does that help you understand some of the, the personalities, the entrepreneurs that we see in the museum? What, and, and what about it, what about them, I guess, do you understand because of your own experience? I believe my experience is so suitable for what we're trying to accomplish because it is so varied and um and diverse, and because it is very business and entrepreneurial heavy, um, I understand what the process looks like. I understand the life cycle. Um, I understand, uh, you know, the challenges that inventors may have bringing their product to market. Um, but I also think I'm the right person for the Cade at the moment because I am an entrepreneur, and this organization is very much a startup. And so for me, having this conversation is as much about being a non like a nonprofit entrepreneur as it is about being the executive director of the Cade Museum and what experiences we offer to the public. The Cade Museum opened its doors in May 2018. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, you know, right now, um, it's, it's sort of in the process of getting known in the community, of sort of building up... Uh, uh, in an audience, so to speak. What's the next step for the Cave Museum? Uh, assuming that, uh, you know, we've sort of maxed out our possibilities in Gainesville, what what comes next? So the vision of the Cade is that we would have branded Cade experiences worldwide. And it's kind of audacious to say something like that. But I believe that is what we will accomplish. Um we are developing an educational framework that uses invention 
as inspired by Dr. Cade as the center point of both our visitor experience and our educational outreach. And I believe the goal of that is to eventually take that education and license it and bring it out into other communities. And we'll choose communities based upon need. So we really believe at the Cade that there are whole swaths of the population that aren't getting access to technology and science education simply because of their circumstance and their situation. And so our focus is on being that bridge to the innovation economy, if you will, and bringing this educational framework and the experiences that will be associated with it to these populations. So I often say we're a museum with a mission. We're not just for things, we're a museum of ideas, and we're a museum to help bridge, be a bridge to the innovation economy. One of the things I like about uh, the K Museum is uh, this this paradigm, this this origin story of Gatorade, which which started out as a small little research project in a, a Gainesville that was smaller then than it certainly is now, mm-hmm. and it eventually became a you know world famous uh, product that you can get anywhere in the world. So I, if if that's sort of the model, I think that's a great model to follow, right? That right. start a, a small educational mission here, relatively small, and eventually branch out to the um, end of the world. Yeah. The edge of the world. There are a few other connections that Decade has with entrepreneurship, uh, runs a prize. What is what is the prize about? Um, you know, I know, but I'm <laughs> going to ask you to explain. What is the, what is it? What is the prize trying to do? And, and then, um, uh, you know, there's an educational tie in to the, the prize. If you could explain a little bit about that. So the Cade Prize is there to recognize and celebrate innovative ideas that are within the state of Florida. And I I believe we'll see that also expanding in its scope over time, geographic scope. Um, But it's really a vehicle for us to inspire and encourage those with innovative ideas that have a viable potential to bring them forth and to to celebrate and recognize them. And the the thing that uh, is exciting to me is that the fact how using those inventors to come back to the museum and teach classes uh, that... The uh, I, th- I think it's every weekend, right, that we have in their inventors who are sort of explain their technologies. Right. Um, and what's really neat is to sort of see some of those kids uh, or even adults, right, interact with uh, inventors who, by definition, are the experts on the technology. And, and it really ties, I think, that image of inventors and entrepreneurs together because you sort of see it in the flesh. Well, everything is inventor centered. Mm-hmm. And and I think what you're illustrating and you can say it so much better than I Richard because you've been living it for about 13 years, you know. Um, seems like 26 years. Right? <laughs> if not 260. <laughs> but um, the thing that I love most about what we're trying to do is we're not just putting things or ideas in front of our guests and students. We're bringing people in front of them as well. And that's the connection of not just the head and the hands, but also the heart. I think we learn so much better when we're able to look at someone in the eye and respond to them. And um, these inventors that we we bring to us from the Cade Prize and through university research facilities and such, it's incredible to watch them come in and share their passion for their life's work with an eight-year-old girl or a 70-year-old man, um, they all get to come in and have these conversations and learn more and understand more about either the invention 
or the inventor. What has struck me in being involved in the museum, and, and probably you as well, is you know we're, we're living in this uh, transition time of just communication itself, right? How people get their information is changing so rapidly. This podcast is one evidence of that, right? That the explosive growth in podcasts and how popular they are, and it's definitely affected museums, right? And mm-hmm. the, the way that people want to get information, the most effective way to communicate it with them. And museums have been affected by that same trend, right? That the way we do our exhibits, the way we do our programming, um, you have to, you want to retain some of the old ways, right? There are still things to look at. But as you said, it's you've got to go several levels now deeper in terms of a, an experience that's really interactive and, and remember interactive used to mean just pushing a button on, on a video Not and and now you know one thing I found uh, very interesting is we did some of the research on the design of the museum is that uh, all the things that 10 15 years ago were considered really hot you know oh look at this AV technology no, no one's really interested because we all everyone has it on their has iPad at home to it, yeah. so why would you go to a museum if it's just an experience that you could have on your couch exactly uh, and so that has created real challenges for museums right it's not that easy anymore you can't just put up a, a screen no you can't and I think you have to you have to offer authentic um, authentic interactions and I think you have to build a facility that allows you, to change rapidly mm-hmm. with technological changes. And I think I think that it, that is one of the most important elements um, of running the museum that we have is making it adaptable and we change. I mean, we change every week. We change the theme every time we change our inventor. That's not something that you see very often. And um, well, ever, I don't think you can see that anywhere in the country. But um, for those of you who've never been to the Cade, um, the experience we offer is every Saturday, we have a different event inventor that's featured in our rotunda. And the education that surrounds the inventor, it reflects their work. And, and it changes at least monthly, sometimes weekly. And so every time you walk into the Cade Museum, you will have a different experience. There isn't any other place like that in the United States yet. But I think you have to be that adaptable to be able to survive, to stay fresh, and to provide innovative content to um, this vast population that can get their get anything they want on their iPad or their phones. So, And it's why, quite intentionally, right, we didn't become a museum of technology. Right. right? Because unless you want to be the museum of the Palm Pilot or the <laughs> iPhone 4, right. right, you'd be swapping out exhibits every week. Every uh, week. And, and you can't do no. that. Nobody can afford no. to do that. Um, and it, plus, it, it's not a great experience. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, it's been a great conversation. I think we're probably going to have you back on again to talk about what the Cade is doing, where it's going. Um, but it sounds like an exciting mission. It sounds like you're excited to be here. Oh, it's an honor. I love every day. So thank you. Well, thanks for coming on to Radio Cade. Yeah. I'm Richard Miles. Thanks for listening. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. 
Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention located in Gainesville, Florida.